We're in a series called Distractions. And what we've been talking about is this idea that there are certain things that are actually kind of small. They start out small. Just if, if, you, if you think about a person's life that has flamed out or has had big problems, that normally doesn't happen just all at once. A person doesn't typically wake up one morning and instead of going to work, they rob a liquor store. <laughs> That's not typically what happens. They don't wake up one morning and go, I think I'm going to ruin my family. It typically starts off with little things that are just maybe glances, maybe little um, sidetracks, if you will, maybe a little question. I, I wonder if, I, I wonder if that, what would have happened if, and it just starts out that. And we've been talking that those are distractions. And what we've been saying all along is that always the thing that we're distracted to is trying to answer a question that God has already answered. In other words, we're being distracted from the solution in order to look at something that is going to be the problem. And so we've talked about all different ways that we do this. We talked about the fact that sometimes consumerism is a distraction. That we think we want something, or we deserve something, or we need something. And so we get distracted from our Heavenly Father who provides all good things to us. We've talked about being distracted by our regrets, by our past, and how we think about ourselves in the past, and we think, how could I have been so stupid? Or how could I have uh, missed that whole thing? And, and, and in fact, it's the Lord, it's God, who cleanses us from our past. We've talked about outrage, about being distracted by things that are happening in the world, elections and companies and thing, all these different things, teachers and whatever you're distracted, whatever your thing outrages you and how, in fact, God has all things under control. Well, two weeks ago, we had a distraction that's in every single one of us and we couldn't finish in time. <laughs> and so what we decided to do, because we had already had the sermon planned for Mother's Day, was we were going to do part two uh, today. So we're actually doing the second part of a sermon two weeks ago. Does that make sense? So what I'm going to do Let's talk a little bit about it, cover what we talked about a couple weeks ago, go over our main point, and then see a verse that I didn't want to just leave out. And this is why we're doing this sermon this morning, because the verse we're going to read this morning is the key, not only to the distraction, what we talked about two weeks ago, which was fantasy, it's not only the key to that, but it's the key to almost all the other distractions, I would say all of them. That the verses we're going to look at this morning are the, almost the how-to, the, the linchpin or the kingpin or the lynch mob or what do you call the thing that is the key one, the, whatever, yeah, the kitchen. Um, okay, um, and so we're talking about the distraction of fantasy and we talked about the fact that all of us let our minds wander, which is fine. All of us will think about, oh, wouldn't it be cool if I won the lottery? What I'm talking about is when that fantasy, when that thing begins to take a hold and we begin to change our behavior to pursue it. We talked about a man, our main point for the morning was this. God wants us to leave fantasy and meet him in reality. 
God wants us to leave the fantasy that we're going after. What if I had a different wife? What if I had a husband? What if I had a different job? What? And meet him in our current reality. Because what we talked about two weeks ago, and if you di- weren't here, uh, go online. You can watch it online or you can uh, download the audio. It's an important one to get context. I'm going to review a little bit. But what we talked about is that God is not in fantasy. He's not there. He's in reality. He's a real God who operates in reality. I have a saying that I, when I talk to people all the time, I, I say this, that God doesn't operate in the hypothetical. So, uh, for example, in our, in our house, um, as our son was dealing with the darkest parts of having epilepsy, when uh, the seizures were the most um, intense and the most close together, people would say to us, I don't know how you do it. I I could never handle that. And to which I'd say, that's because God isn't giving you grace to handle something hypothetical for you. He doesn't, you don't think about, wow, what would happen if my house burned down? And God's like, ooh, ooh, hold on. Here, let's talk about it together. He goes, your house didn't burn down. Why don't you just come back over here and let's talk about the stuff that's actually happening. If something like that happened to you with your family members or your house, God is there in reality to strengthen you, to give you peace, to give you joy in the midst of, 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 of problems. But he doesn't operate in fantasy, in the hypothetical. This is why fantasy is so dangerous. Because we start to go with, in our minds into a little sliver and God's not there. Now, he might be there saying, uh, don't waste your time with that right now. That He could be doing that. But the minute we, we give that in. So we looked uh, two weeks ago about a man who did this. A man who started out with a little sliver of fantasy and he changed his behavior to try to get it to happen. And it cost him a lot. And it cost a lot of people a lot. So I want to review this story uh, in a, just for a little bit before we get into some other vital scriptures on how, to, on how to deal with that. It's David. He's the king of Israel. He's the second king of Israel. And what's ironic about this whole story is they weren't even supposed to have a king. Israel was supposed to be led by God. It was supposed to be a theocracy. And God sent a prophet, uh, uh, Samuel, to the nation of Israel saying, you don't want a king. You don't want a king. And Israel was fantasizing about how great it would be to have a king. And here they'd use language like all the other nations would respect us. I mean, how weird would it be? They all have kings and they all, and then we don't have a king. How odd would that, would that be? And they begin fantasizing of what it's like to have a king. And Samuel comes in and basically straight to their faces says, it's, it will be horrible for you. God is your king. Your, your sons and daughters, your sons will be led out to war. Your daughters will be called in to the palace. It's, it's going to go bad. And the nation of Israel, because fantasy overcame their reality, demanded a king. And God said, you want your fantasy to be reality? Have at it. And they did. And it cost them a lot. And it cost them a lot for several uh, centuries. The first one they had was Saul. And he went nuts. He tried to kill David. And then David's in here. And here's David now. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war... At the time, so this is the king's job at this time. At the, at the time kings go off to war, David sent Joab out. Now, if you're reading the Bible and you're reading the text, even when it was first written, you'd go, 
the question you'd ask is a question we'd all ask. Well, wait, if it's time for kings to go to war, why would David stay at home? Why would he send Joab? I must, we'll probably find out later in the story. <laughs> and the whole Israelite army. One evening, David's just kicking back in his, uh, in his bedroom. He got up from his bed, or some, some versions say couch, and he walked around the roof of the palace because, you know, his, he's probably going up there to pray. And because the stars are up there and, you know, they're all out. He's probably going to pray for the people he sent off to war is what's probably going to happen. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Now, again, as I said two weeks ago, I don't want to read too much into the scripture, but I, I know a lot of dudes. And so um, I don't know. I would guess that this was not the first time David had been up on his roof looking around. I wonder if David stayed home so he could go back up on his roof and just check stuff out. I am totally reading in the scripture. I might be wrong. I just know a lot of people. And so, uh, and I know myself. And so the woman was very beautiful. So David sent someone to her to find out about her. Like, is she okay? It looked cold outside. Is she gonna, does she, does she not, is the plumbing not working during the day? I don't know. And he, so the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Okay. So David sends messengers to her. And he says, hey, uh, you might not want to bathe outside because I can see you. That's not what he says. David sent messengers to her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now, we're not going to go through the whole uh, deal about that because we don't have time this morning. But here's how the story ends up. She tells him she's pregnant. His fantasy has just become reality. The full weight of what he wanted actually took place. And what, what we warned about two weeks ago was you might be in a place right now where you can still stop this. That your fantasy, your flirtation, the thing you're thinking about, the, and, and again, there's so many different kinds of this. I'm just leaving it to the Holy Spirit to tell you what it is. That you could be at a place right now where you can go, you know what? I need to, I need to just, this isn't healthy, Okay. His fantasy becomes reality. David calls her husband back from war. And his whole plan is, well, I'll get him to sleep with her. And then, and then you know, hey, who knows who the child is, you know, at that, at that point. He tells the husband to go home. Husband doesn't go home. He says, how can I go home and be with my wife when all my buddies are at war? This happens twice. And then finally, he gets the husband drunk and tries again. Um, number five, he sends the husband back with a note. And this is the probably the sickest part of the whole thing. He sends Uriah back to give it to Joab and the note says, kill Uriah. Like David sends his death sentence with him with a most likely a wax, uh, a hot wax thing that he sealed with his ring to say if anyone opens this up and looks at it, they're dead. And so he has the husband killed. Two weeks ago, I, I made up this verse that sums up the whole story in one verse. One evening, David got up from his bed and a bunch of innocent people died. <laughs> that was the connection. That David gets somebody pregnant. He gets Uriah the Hittite. And the Bible tells us that a few other people died in the process of him working out that whole scheme. Now, how in the world 
do you get from getting up from bed to getting someone pregnant and having some people killed? You act and you feed your fantasies. Fantasies must be kept alive. They must be fed. And oftentimes the way we do this without feeling guilty is we just feed them a little bit. We just maybe every week think about, man, that would be cool or whatever. And we just spoon feed them and, and we get to mitigate it. And it feels like we're in control. The problem is as you begin to feed a fantasy, no matter what that is, it will begin to grow. And there will come a time when now you're not in control of the fantasy, but the fantasy is in control of you. And the way this happens is your behavior begins to change. And so what we're trying to do this morning is look at how can I get rid of that fantasy when it's small? And, and this shows up in lots of different ways. Um, you might have a certain thing that's going on in your mind at, at work. And so... Uh, maybe somebody you think is cute. I don't know. I, I'm just trying to come up with something. And so, uh, you know, you always go to the copier this way because that's where it is. That's the closest way. Um, but hey, they're over here. And so you're just, every time you go to the copier, you, you ta- you're taking the long route. And you're not doing anything. You're not even talking to the person. You're just, you're just adding. You're just feeding that fantasy. Maybe your fantasy is something you, uh, 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 um, what you want to achieve in life or what you want to buy in life. And you're not doing anything. You're just on the internet. You're just browsing. It's called a browser. Why can't I browse? I mean, that's exactly what it's called. And so you're just browsing, but your, your behavior is beginning to change. That is a sign that the fantasy is beginning to take over. The problem is this. If we don't get a hold of them, if we don't get control of them, they will get a hold of us and they will control us. And what will happen then is we will bring that fantasy into our reality. And guess who's in our reality with us? It's God. One of the most frightening verses in the Bible, um, or at least around this story, is this verse right here, 2 Samuel 12, 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Like, okay, now it's become your reality. And that's where I am. And so now we're going to talk about that. And some of us are in that situation right now. Your life is difficult right now because God is talking to you about the reality that you have created for yourself and he's disciplining you in a sense to go, come on, it's time to get out of that. It's time to move forward. What's interesting about this, and we don't have time to go into the whole story, but um, David's actually forgiven of this. When Nathan talks to David, he says, David, don't worry, your sins are forgiven which we don't even have a record of him asking for that, but what we're assuming is that the psalm that he writes of forgiveness was written in this gap of verses. But he sends him to David and he says, basically your sins are forgiven, but you're going to be held accountable to the consequences of your fantasy becoming reality. You're in a new reality now. And so there's going to be some consequences. What was very fascinating about the story too is God goes on to tell David If you had just asked, if you had just processed with me, I would have have figured out what you needed and what you wanted. And I would have provided that. And it says, and more in the Bible, which is just incredible to me. And we talked about how many things have I missed because I wasn't ready to just bring it to the Lord and go through that process 
of destroying and starving that fantasy. God wants us to leave fantasy and meet him in reality. Well, how, how do we do that? Um, uh, is it just going, no, I'm not going to think about that? What, what, what is the process? And the Bible in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, begins this systematic way of thinking about how we think and allowing God access to a lot of what's going on. It, it, it's a lot of understanding who we are and what our weaknesses are and what our tendencies are and then allowing God to come in to address those with us. Because regardless of what your fantasy is, if you knew where my mind wanders, uh, you would go, well, that's dumb. And if I knew where yours did, that's dumb. But God, who knows us, is, doesn't say that. He says, let's, good, let's, let's deal with that. So I'll give you a way where my mind wanders, and I'll talk a little bit about, uh, um, about three years ago. Um, I realized that my mind all the time would go and have conversations with, with people that were not there. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever done this, but you know, you think about maybe being wronged or maybe somebody who's, not, and this could be anybody. This could be like the vice president of the United States or just wherever, a teacher that one of my kids was having problems with. And I would, I would find myself having conversations with people who, who weren't there. And, and in the fantasy, if you will, or the, the rut that I was making in my mind, I always won the argument, okay? I always won the argument. I always had the best thing to say. And really what I was doing was practicing just in case this thing came. Now, here's the problem. God's not there. God is not in the conversation. God is not even concerned with me practicing the, practicing the conversation. So I began to realize this about myself, and I began to try to get God into those conversations. Or instead of having a conversation with a person who wasn't in the room, I would have a conversation with God who was in the room. Okay? So that just shows you my sickness. All right. So, so that's how this begins to happen. 2 Corinthians 10.3, for we, for though we live in the world, there's no doubt about that, we all live in the world, we all have our own problems, we all have our own needs, we all have our own tendencies, our own brokenness, we do not wage war as the world does. Now this, this word for wage war is just to scheme, and the reason Paul is, Paul is just using a, an analogy of war. He's not, this isn't we're at war with the world or the world is at war with us. And, and what he means by world is not people who believe different than us, but a culture, a system of thinking. And so any culture you're in, any place you are, there is a system of thinking. And what the Bible is saying is that even though we're in that system, we don't necessarily adopt the values of that system. So, for example, one of our American systems or, or, or a system of just, you know, our culture is that in order to retire in peace and in order to retire um, the way that is the best, you have to have amassed a certain amount of money. Okay? That's just our culture. But if you look at the Bible... The Bible doesn't really talk about that at all. The Bible does talk about working hard. The Bible does talk about saving. The Bible talks about planning. But the Bible doesn't talk about there's a certain way 
to retire. Our culture does. That's why even in 20s or 30s or 40s, you're anxious and nervous about retirement. Some of us, not all of us, but some of us, okay? That's, that's the system of the world. And so we don't wage war that way. And Jesus was notorious at showing us this. He says, oh, you want to be first? <laughs> Get to the back of the line. You're going to be last. He said, you want to gain your life? You want to gain your life? You got to lose your life. You want to be blessed? It's probably going to come through persecution and some um, other things. He just flipped it all. That's what this verse is talking about. For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with, in other words, the tools we use to accomplish the things that we think need to be accomplished are not the weapons of the world. It's not our sexuality. It's not our finances. It's not our position of authority. It's not our power. It's not our intellect. Those are weapons our culture uses. We don't fight with those weapons. We don't need to be in this particular place in order to find happiness. We don't need to have this particular person. We don't need to have this particular marriage status in order to, uh, in order to get through life. Now, this next verse is so powerful. It says, to the opposite, like the opposite of all that, or on the contrary... They have, in other words, the, the weapons we fight with, divine power to demolish strongholds. Oftentimes, you will find that the fantasy or the wish or the dream that you're tending to go off of is related to your stronghold. Now, for those who went through the Rooted series that we did, um, this uh, starting in February... Um, there, well, there was a hundred of us. We had talked about it since November, trying to get as many people as we could to go through this. Um, how, just a show of hands, how many people were there? And if you're at home watching this, you can raise your hand in your living room. Okay, good, good. Awesome. Yeah, there was a, quite, quite a bit of people. One of the things we talked about in this, and we're going to do it again in the fall, uh, is our strongholds. The things that, the lies we've been told that we've adopted, I guess is the easiest way to say that. And so we, we get something in our, in our mind like, if I just want my parents to tell me they're proud of me. And so we work and work and work and work and work and, and, and manipulate and try to do this just to get that one thing. Well, the weapons of the world say, oh, no, we would just demolish that. Like, we're not going to fulfill it with those weapons. We're going to demolish that stronghold. There might be a stronghold in you that you were called a certain name when you were six years old and you have carried that name as an identity on your shirt as people talk to you. It's your filter. When someone talks to you, you think they're saying a certain thing about you and they have no clue or anything and it's ruining your relationship. God's word has these weapons to demolish that, to get rid of that. To give you a new name and a new identity. And so he says, on the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Further, we demolish arguments, every pretension that sets, its up, uh, sets uh, itself up against, listen to this, the knowledge of God. See, God is in our reality. So it is vital that we understand who God really is. We, 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 ha we have to understand who he really is. 
We sang this morning, you're a good, good father. That's who you are. That is your identity. Now, as we look at our circumstances and we think, if I only had this, and why don't, and why did this happen to me? And where is God or whatever? We come back to our reality and we go, you're a good, good father. That's who you are. And I'm loved by you. That's who I am. If we just get that right, (laughs) imagine what our lives would look like. Imagine if you began looking at your future, if you began looking at these situations in your life where you just like, I'm longing for a relationship in this area of my life, but you're a good, good father, and I'm loved by you. That's what they call demolishing strongholds. It's putting it in the light of Scripture. It's saying, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to make it into retirement, but you know what? The Bible says you're my provider. You are Jehovah Jireh. You're going to take care of me. That's taking it out. That's demolishing the stronghold. And it's everything. Because what's going to happen is that the culture is so strong and our human nature and our brokenness is so strong, we're going to start these arguments with ourselves of like, well, you know, but, you know, if I don't take care of myself and who's going to take care of me and all this kind of stuff, the word of God demolishes that. How does this happen? The whole key to this is in the next verse. The whole, if you want your next step, it's in this next verse. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. I don't know about you, but that sounds exhausting. (laughs) Like, really? Every thought? It's like, should I have the bean burrito? Like, no, let me find out. Nope, I guess I'm going to have the chicken burrito. Like, The Bible knows we're smarter than that. When it says every thought, the Bible knows that you're going to have access to a Holy Spirit that's going to give you and train you with the ability to go, where did that come from? Now, you have to understand the language that Paul is talking with right now. Back in those times, and and the way Paul would have seen war, what you would do is you would go and you would conquer um, whatever region it was, whatever kingdom it was, because that language is better for my sermon, whatever kingdom it was, and you would conquer that kingdom, and you would take that king back to your kingdom, and you would march him on a horse, bound, head hung, through your kingdom. And everybody in the kingdom would be like, yeah, we're victorious, we have power, we won. And then they'd behead the king. But the point is that, that that's, that's what would happen. They would take that king captive. Further, they would make all the people, and oftentimes the wealthiest and the, the most attractive. As a matter of fact, uh, this is what happened to Israel when, it, when they went to Babylon. They took uh, Israel's smartest people, the wealthiest people, the, the people with the most influence, and they enslaved them. That was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That was Daniel, okay? Those were the elites, and they would do this. They would take them captive, and they would use them to build their kingdom. Now, with that in mind, what does it look like to take a thought captive? And what would be the weapon, the best weapon, we could use in order to make that happen? Well, your most practical weapon is the sword. As a matter of fact, Paul uses this language in Ephesians. 
And he's talking about all the different ways you wage war and all the different things you need. And he gets to one and he says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In Hebrews, we don't necessarily know who the writer of Hebrews was, but we know it was written to Hebrews. Um, He says this, the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing, right? It, it, It can like get in there of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So to take every thought captive would look something like this. You begin to get a thought. I wonder what it would be like to be married to my boss. He seems so much smarter than my husband, right? (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I know. Everyone's like, ew. All right, okay. Hey, look, I'm doing the best I can up here, all right? I can't nail everybody's fantasy. I don't know what it is. Okay. So, so you, yeah. It was like, okay. So, so that thought comes in your, okay, pick something else, okay? You guys can do your own work. I don't have to do everything for you. So you pick that there and you go, hey, where did you come from? What, what, who are you? What's going on? Why do you, what? and here's the thing. Do you, do you already have a husband? And it's like, I'm not saying anything. And you take the sword of spirit, yield, you know. You already have a husband? Yes. Whoosh, you're done. That one's gone. Okay? Okay. So let's look, we'll look at one that's not so egregious. Man, I really, 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 really need those shoes. <laughs> that's the thought. Come here. Come here. What, do you, what was that? I just needed some shoes. Do you need the shoes? No, I don't need the shoes. Okay? You want the shoes. Yes. Do you have the money for the shoes? Technically. I do. Technically. Technically, I have access to that. Uh, Come on. Do you have the money? I do not have the money. Okay. All right. What should you spend the money? Yes. On what? stewardship. Okay, get back in line. Okay, right? Like that's, that's taking every thought captive. And here's the cool thing about this, which I love. Obviously, the Bible isn't saying take every thought captive. What the Bible's saying is be in touch with the Holy Spirit who will bring a thought in front of you and go, come on, interrogate this dude. Because this, this one, I, uh, this one's shifty. I think it should go back and make straw bricks for the kingdom or whatever. And here's what happens. And this is why these thoughts that we take captive end up allowing us to build the kingdom of God. Because you're going to have those thoughts. This is why he says, take every thought captive. He doesn't say, stop thinking. He doesn't say, stop. It's going to happen. It's human nature. And when it happens, you get an opportunity to take that thought and to interrogate it, to take it captive, and then be able to bring the light of the Word of God to it, which stops those thoughts in the first place. It removes their power. They become slaves to the kingdom of God. He says, we are to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Not just go, oh, that was dumb. That was, God, what's happening? Why am I going after these things? Why am I seeking these things? Because when we, listen, when we take every thought captive and make the thoughts obedient to Christ, guess who becomes obedient to Christ? We do, because those thoughts begin to change behavior. And that behavior, when it becomes a reality, damages our lives. So if we can get the thoughts to become obedient to Christ. The behavior 
then changes. Does that make sense? Do you see why this particular scripture is so vitally important? Um, There's another uh, scripture uh, that sums all this up, and it's found in Romans. It's very famous. And you can go back in your Bible, or if you use a mobile device for your Bible, and you can go back to this verse, Romans 12, 2. Very, very important one. And you can write this on a card. You can make it your screensaver. You can um, get a tattoo. I don't know, whatever you do to remember stuff. Here's what it says. And do not be conformed to this world. This means shaped into the standards of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Watch what it says. This is incredible. So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Your mind and my mind is the most powerful tool we have, and it is the most dangerous tool we have. Almost every bit of trouble we've probably ever gotten into started right right here, and we didn't check it. As the worship band comes back up, we're going to um, just have a time where we can review that song again, Good, Good Father, because that's really who he is. And at this time, we'd ask you to do a few things. One is to fill out that connection card, which is so vitally important for us. And if you have a prayer request to put that on there, we pray for every single one, every single week. Um, if this is a day where you give, um, many of us give online, but if, you, if that's your act of worship this morning, then you do that at this time. But we'll get a chance to join with the worship band in a little bit to continue in singing this song. And when we get to that phrase, you're a good, good father, it's who you are. If you have the ability to do so, or if you can uh, think about that one thing that you keep getting distracted, that one fantasy, if you will. And you just might want to get there and then begin to address your heavenly father. I I do not need that. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I am loved by you. It's who I am. And begin to take that thought captive and bring it into the obedience of your position in Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we are thankful that you love us. We are thankful that... um, Our reality is with you, no matter how difficult our lives are. So, Lord, I pray as we enter into this portion of the service that you'd speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen.